Hi, my name is Jan Wilczek from dwolfsound.com. Welcome to Wolf Talk, a podcast about audio programming. In this podcast, you will learn how to build your career in programming or research related to audio, meet programmers and researchers from all around the world, and learn about the intricacies of sound. Hi everyone, and welcome to the 13th episode of the Wolf Talk podcast. Today I'm very excited because you get a chance to meet Jay Pocknell. He's a production mixing engineer from the UK, and he's the founder of Sound Without Sight, organization. He also currently works at the Royal National Institute of Blind People. So we met at the Audio Developers Conference of 2022 and we agreed then that it would be awesome to do a podcast together discussing certain various important topics in the field of audio developers that we believe don't get as much exposure as they should. So I'm very happy that it actually happened. What we'll talk about is the story of how he overcame the difficulties in seeing when building his career as a musician and as a mixing and as a sound engineer. He also will also discuss how he started the Sound Without Sight organization and in relation to it I really want to delve deep and I believe we managed to do it what hardships must people with disabilities overcome in the field of music? And then the important bit for the developers out there, me including, so what makes audio software accessible to people with blindness or partial blindness? For me, it's a very exciting topic. It's a very exciting cause to explore. And I highly, highly encourage you to listen to the whole of the podcast episode. I'm an audio developer myself, and I found it incredibly, incredibly useful. I've made a ton of notes and it definitely impacted the way I'll develop audio software in the future. As usual, all people, places and references mentioned in the podcast episode can be found in the episode notes under dwoosound.com slash talk. 013. Once again, it's dwolfsound.com slash talk013. And if you're unsure if you can develop audio software at all, or you want to make sure that you actually know everything that is necessary, I encourage you to check out my free audio plugin developer checklist. It lists, it lists every piece of knowledge that I believe is necessary for becoming a full-fledged audio programmer. So be sure to check it out. And now I present to you Jay Pocknell. Hi Jay, thanks for agreeing on this interview. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very excited for this. Um, so yeah, my name's Jay Pocknell. Um, I am a mix engineer. Um, I also work for the Royal National Institute of Blind People as music support officer. And on top of all of those things, I also am founder and project manager of Sound Without Sight, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a sec, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm very excited to have it discussed on the podcast. So 
Tell me, that's a question I, I really love asking. How did you get involved in music? Oh, I mean, it's been a, a long time. I think, you know, ever since I was little, um, ever since I was a child, I always knew that was something that I wanted to do. I grew up around music a lot. So my parents were always in kind of DIY, uh, kind of punky bands, like always putting on gigs here and there. So I was kind of born into it, really. Um, it was, yeah, <laughs> almost written that I would just have to get involved in some way. Um, and I think I just inherited that really. And as like as soon as I was old enough to be meeting artists in my kind of local community, um, I just wanted to get involved in production and recording. Um, so would, you know, meet people at open mic nights and just get them to, you know, work on demos here and there. And I was very lucky to have grown up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. So we'd make a load of noise, and, you know, um, just make demos um, and that's how I kind of grew up um, then went off to uni did music and sound recording at the University of Surrey um, which was fun um, really nice to kind of I guess put some kind of certification on all that kind of practice that I'd had before that time um, also thanks to that course I got my first job which was at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama um, which is an awesome kind of conservatoire uh, in the UK. Um, I think I'm a little bit biased, but I'd say it's probably the, the best the best kind of music college. Um, so I was there kind of in-house recording engineer and uh, audiovisual technician. Um, so I think that really broadened my kind of experience of genres from the kind of more DIY alternative stuff to, you know, working on like classical and jazz and experimental stuff like every day. It was a massive spectrum of stuff there. Um, so that was great. Um, I think after that, um, I just felt like I wanted to do the freelance, like recording engineer thing. And I was very lucky to, to I guess, be in the right place and the right time. And within a couple of years, end up working in London studios and, and being that kind of recording engineer, mixing engineer, you know, fill, filling those kind of roles. And it was it was great. Um so that's in a nutshell how I ended up doing music stuff. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I also get a chance to listen to some of the works that you contributed to. Uh, is there any go-to place that you would recommend a podcast listener to listeners to go to to check out uh, the works that you've done? Oh, I'm I'm actually really bad at kind of blowing my own trumpet with all that kind of thing. I don't really have like a specific website. I think if you put my name into Google, there's a few. You know, places that aggregate um, credits and stuff like that. So I've never set them up. I think I have a profile on all music and discogs and places like that. Um, and I guess that's, again, it's nice to have that record of some of the like more well-known stuff that people would recognize. Um, and yeah, really, really good to kind of have those strings to my bow. Um, I will say these days, a lot of the recording that I do is with more kind of emerging artists. Um, I really, really like that you know working with up and coming people on their like first release um i feel like that's like mm -hmm. a really really inspiring time to to kind of join someone on their on their journey um so yeah i think probably it's been a couple of years since i did like a release that was getting into the charts that kind of thing um but i'm not too sad about that <laughs> Yeah, cool, cool. And uh, many congrats on the work that you've already already done. I also personally just uh, Googled your, your name and had no trouble finding the, the relevant works. And regarding, in regard to that, is there any uh, specific uh, 
type of musical content that you specialize in and your genre? Um, I think it's kind of anything that makes me feel something, like any music that feels honest in itself. Um, I guess before I work on something, I always go and see someone perform or at least have a have a nice chat over the phone and it's like if I get that feeling of inspiration then that's something that I want to work on it's, it's not so much about the kind of specific genre of it I guess a lot of the stuff that I work on comes out of stuff that I've done before so it does tend to be this kind of alternative um, guitar based or electronic genres something in that kind of general area so yeah, somewhere between kind of folk and electronic music via rock in in the middle. Um, I guess generally I prefer stuff that's a bit rough and ready, um, a bit kind of characterful, because I think then there's more opportunity to lean into those kind of elements in a mix, um, which is pretty fun. Um, but also, you know, a bit of clean pop or classical is, is, is cool too. Um, I like to vary it, basically. Yeah, I understand. I understand. And... Uh... Definitely, hmm, I could hear, you know, some character in your mixes. So that's, that's really awesome. And I also love the fact that you try to help, you know, emerging musicians and, and find what's the best in them, so to say. Um, uh, then I know that another great part of your life uh, is the Sound Without Sight organization. And I'd really uh, like to ask you, could you... Tell us a little bit more, like, what's the origin of this organization and what its purpose? Yeah, I think the origin, like the first, the seeds were probably planted in my brain when I was doing the kind of commercial London recording studio stuff um, in that, I guess, with my own journey with um, being partially sighted, having some kind of sight impairment, there, I just came up against certain things that, I was aware weren't as easy for me um, as I experienced, you know, other people that I went to uni with or whatever. There were just certain barriers or certain bits of kind of impedance that were there. Like, I think to, to be uh, to be working in music these days, you have to have, like, real mobility to be able to kind of try you know different roles here and there and I think if you've got any kind of additional access requirements it takes a bit of time to to learn how to do certain things or to find your your ways around stuff or to find solutions that work for you um, so I think in those times when I was trying loads of different things to work out which areas of the industry I liked um, it would have been really really useful if there was a like better representation of people like me so people that have sight loss or really any any kind of disability or access requirement really because that that I at that point in time I couldn't think of many people at all working um in music um in the kind of industry at that kind of level that I could go to for advice um and I think what I really wanted to do was create that place you know create a platform where people who are exploring music for the first time or exploring music, you know, later in life, or maybe, you know, maybe they're a really experienced engineer and they've just started to lose their sight um, somewhere that will enable that kind of peer support. Um, so that was the real kind of core behind it, really, um, to increase representation and to encourage and facilitate that kind of peer support. So if someone has experienced a problem for the first time, there's like 
a documented way, you know, because it won't be the first time that someone has tried to follow a certain path. Um, but right now, it could easily feel like it um, because there's no documentation of how people have found solutions in the past. Um, I, I think it's quite true, um, certainly from my own experience, to feel like you're the only person that's tried to do this, um, which, of course, isn't true. But um, that's what it feels like when you don't have a place that collates experience. So that, that was the idea of the project, really, to create this place. Awesome. That's, that's really amazing. And I strongly, strongly believe in, in the mission of, your, of this organization, of this community as well. So uh, as you have these very ambitious goals, how do you approach them on a day-to-day -day basis? What do you do to achieve them? Yeah, I think key to the whole thing is the the partnerships and working with other organizations, um, you know, when opportunities come up like this one, making the most of it and just making sure that, you know, you're giving yourself the best platform. So my day-to-day -day thing with Sound Without Sight is just being the project manager and whatever it takes to to get it off the ground. Um, so I'm I'm very, very lucky that we've got a really, really kind of robust steering group um, that kind of helped me on a, you know, every three weeks, every two or three weeks, we'll meet up um, and, and work out what needs to happen. Um, and I think setting realistic targets and ambitions um, for like when we're going to launch and what we need to get done each month. Um, that's really, really helpful for, for keeping stuff on track. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really exciting time at the moment because we're actually at the end of the the first development phase. So we're, we're almost ready to launch that first version. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to admit that that won't be the final version. Um, And, you know, the whole point of the project is that I'm quite happy to admit that I'm not the expert in every area of music. I'm not the expert in every area of sight loss or, you know, whatever anyone's got going on. But I'm also very proud to be able to say, you know, put some serious effort into this project. And I think it's in a state that we can now kind of press go on it um, and, and, and let people kind of have at it and get involved. <laughs> so, yeah, nice. the, the next steps are to actually launch the thing, which I'm very, very excited about. Yeah, so uh, can you tell anything more about this or we have to wait until the press official press release? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably by the time this podcast comes out, um, the press release will 100% be out in the world. <laughs> so okay. um, so we, can, we can then just simply link to it in the episode notes. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think depending on when this comes out, it's really worth highlighting this event that's happening at the start of May. Um, so talking about all this partnership work um, and also leaning on the work that I do at RNIB um, Royal National Institute sorry, Royal National Institute of Blind People um, have been able to set up um, an event with Google who obviously massive corporation and really really appreciative that they've seen the value in this area of music um, so again it's a bit of a kind of right place, right time, and making sure that I make the most of everything that comes up. So RNIB had assisted or contributed um, to the design of Google's new offices in London. Um, and one floor of the new offices is dedicated to accessibility. So they call it the Accessibility Discovery Center. Um, and again, what they're doing is providing a platform for 
um, companies, tech companies from across the world, any sector to kind of get together and have a chat about, you know, how can we improve inclusion and accessibility? Um, just so happens that the guy in charge of that whole center, uh, Christopher Patno at Google, he is also a musician. So we just got chatting and we're like, oh, wouldn't it be really cool to do something around music and inclusion and accessibility? And just started thinking about what this event could be. And yeah, just really, really happy that we're able to kind of launch Sound Without Sight alongside that conversation um, and kind of promote it as a, not the solution, but a potential, you know, something that, that can help some of the issues that are there at the moment. Um, so yeah, that is happening on the 4th of May um, in the afternoon. And again, I'll, I'll get a link to you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Can't wait to, to learn about this, really. And uh, I wanted to ask, because it's, it is quite an ambitious project uh, in general. So how many people are currently involved in Sound Without Sight, uh, especially? Yeah, so I think, like I say, we've got the core steering group. Um, so that's probably about 10 of us um, that meet up every few weeks. Um, so that's representatives from a few like great organizations, mainly on the kind of uh in in the third sector from from charities um so people that have a lot of experience in in the world of sight loss but also within that people who experience with music and maybe um maybe have their own experience of 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 coming up against certain barriers um so that's the kind of core operation but like i say we rely massively on partnerships and talking to people like you know, music technology manufacturers and, um, you know, being the hub for all of those conversations and, you know, the topic of inclusion of blind and partially sighted people. Um, so, yeah, I'm in conversation with different people all the time, but I guess the core of it is is me plus the steering group of around 10-ish. Okay, okay, many thanks. And uh, thanks a lot for all the work that you do because... Uh, you know, it's it's uh, great to have this conversation started and to get things moving in the in the right direction. And related to this, or something that you already a little bit mentioned. So you've recently started at the Royal National National Institute of Blind People, right? Yeah, R yeah. N I B. So could you share a little bit what does the institute do and uh, what is your involvement in it? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, R N I B is a massive, massive organization. Um, certainly in the UK, um, again, I'm a little bit biased, but it is, it's the biggest organization supporting blind and partially sighted people. Um, so I did have a, have a quick look at the homepage to see what the latest kind of slogan was. Um, and I think it's cool, actually. Kind of, They've gone for leading the creation of an accessible world, which I think is, it does describe what the organization does in a very broad way, um, because... RNIB has a whole host of services. You know, there's employment support, there's support with accessing healthcare for blind and partially sighted people. Um, there's support with, I don't know, reading, so supporting people to get accessible formats and talking books. Um, you know, all these things. And I think RNIB as a whole has experts in so many different areas of life and leisure. Um, and everyone engages in advocacy work and supporting customers directly to kind of ensure that blind and partially sighted people can participate equitably. I think that's the right word. 
Um, but basically, yeah, we're all kind of just fighting the cause um, so that blind and partially sighted people can access the world in an equal way. Um, and within that, uh, I share the role of music support officer um, with my colleague, Daisy Higman. Um, and it's it's our role to be the kind of music specialist, to be that kind of hub of knowledge that connects R&IB, um, you know, all of the people within the organisation and all of the people that we support across the country and also the world to the relevant people within the music industry. Um, so we might have music technology manufacturers coming to us asking about, you know, how can we make our products accessible? Or it might be teachers or schools coming to us and saying, you know, what do we need to do to uh, kind of change the way that we deliver our teaching and our services to be more inclusive? Um, so all really, really positive conversations. And yeah, I guess we intersect with the kind of music world and the general public in, in quite a few different places. Um, so anytime there's anything music related, it goes through me. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And it sounds very, very exciting. And I'm happy that you mentioned accessible software because exactly uh, this podcast is all about audio software. And for me, it's also incredibly interesting. So Uh, actually, maybe for a little bit of the background, Jay and I met at the Audio Developers Conference 2022 in London. And one of the main topics during the conference, I'd say, was exactly the accessibility of software. And a, a lot of the talks that were done on this topic are already published on YouTube. Uh, so I, of course, encourage you to check them out. But uh, from my perspective, or maybe from, from your perspective, How would you say uh, that what makes audio plugins, for example, audio software, but I think it's easy to, to focus on audio plugins because uh, you also are an experienced mixing engineer. So what in audio plugins makes them accessible to people that are blind or partially blind? And uh, it especially involves musicians or sound engineers and i especially wanted to ask something that you also touched on before are there any official guidelines and encyclopedia that audio programmers can go to and can check out what they can do in their particular plugin or area to make their software accessible i know it's a large question yeah. but please so I'm, maybe i'll tackle the last bit first in that um in that that's kind of what we're hoping sound without sight will be because um, at the moment there are there are little fragments of information kind of scattered around the internet but there's nothing that ties it all together so one of the core kind of categories of the kind of knowledge hub and the forum and the questions section of sound without sight is all around inclusive design um and you know that means making plugins accessible and not just accessible but kind of user friendly um for people that have additional requirements um And what that often means for someone who doesn't have any sight is making sure that all the labels, all of the controls in a plugin are readable by a screen reader. So people that can't access stuff visually on a screen will often use a screen reader like uh, like VoiceOver that's built into a Mac or NVDA on a Windows machine, um, which is a really good and free Uh, screen reader um, they will use these pieces of software to basically read out what what is appearing on the screen um, 
So if you're designing an audio plugin, you need to be giving all the right kind of accessibility labels so that it knows what each control is. Um, and for someone that uses this, it's very, very obvious whether a plugin has been designed with those kind of accessibility functions in mind because it'll either work or they'll just have absolutely no idea what what is under the kind of keyboard focus at the moment. Um, I guess that's something to consider as well is that users will be navigating using a keyboard and not a mouse. So the kind of priority order of controls needs to be logical. Um, some some designers, it seems like, I mean, if that's not being considered and stuff has been kind of a bit kind of haphazard in the design, that will be reflected when you try and navigate using a keyboard um, and you might go right, but the thing that you're focusing on is suddenly at the top and all, all this kind of thing. Um, so it's it's that, it's, it's user interface consideration and maybe that comes with just turning your computer screen off for a little bit and just seeing if you can get around the plugin, um, see if you can do all the things that you need to do um, with your with your screen turned off. Because um, it's not it's not kind of rocket science to turn on a screen reader, especially if you're on a Mac and it's built in. Um, and I think there have been really, really good uh, bits of progress in, in this area recently, especially with Juice building in accessibility into the framework um, from Juice 6 onwards. It becomes a lot easier for the for developers to kind of unlock the potential there, but it still takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of thinking. So... Certainly, I'm hoping that Sound Without Sight can produce some guidelines and some kind of easy reference documents that will make that a lot easier to adopt. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's in a nutshell the considerations for people that don't have any sight. I mean, that's not necessarily my background. I don't use a screen reader all the time. I just use it. I, I use one if there's a big body of text or something because um, my eyes get quite tired. But using when I'm mixing I'm normally just kind of zooming in a lot um, and just blowing stuff up on screen so for people with low vision the ability to change the you know scalable GUI is a is a big thing um, and just making sure that some consideration has gone into color contrast for controls and labels against the background because um, I think there there are some pieces of software that are really quite good to use with a screen reader but if you don't rely on that and you just have limited sight maybe the the visual graphical design isn't so good um so i guess it's just making sure that whole kind of spectrum is considered um yeah yeah uh that's that's really great points i mean a really great points i noted this all down because believe it or not before I went to the conference, I hadn't really considered what are the implications of the software I'm making. But uh, as it was said during the conference, uh, if software is accessible for... So first of all, that there are, there's quite a large uh, community of people who, are, who need accessible software, so to say. So that's one sure. thing. And yeah, so in, in the UK, yeah. um, it's you know, one in five people. Which is exactly, yeah. you know, it, that's a massive market. Yeah, um, yeah, and they're uh, like not allowing them to to create music on the computer. Uh, we're 
kind of excluding them from from the having so much fun in the first place. Yeah, and the, the other end of that conversation is that designing inclusively, so designing for everyone, that doesn't impact anyone else. It doesn't impact the kind of mainstream users. Um, and that was that was a question that I, I made sure to ask and kind of get heard at, at the ADC was that like, you know, when we were speaking or when there was, I think it was Harry from Focusrite up on stage talking about, you know, the journey of designing stuff more inclusively, um, you know, to be able to ask, how, did that impact the usability for, for mainstream users in any way? And the answer was no, like if anything, it just made it easier for everyone. I think there's there's a really good quote. I can't remember where I heard this first, but it's if you design for the edges, the middle takes care of itself. <laughs> nice, nice. Which does kind of like make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, but also there was an important point that was also said that uh, you know if you uh, if you make accessible software, I buy your software, right? if I mm -hmm. need these accessibility features. So it makes sense also from the business point of view. And I, I sure, really sure. Uh, like and I think highlighting that one, aspect. One thing that didn't get highlighted, which I think needs to be highlighted, is that uh, places, organizations like schools and colleges, they need to buy software that supports as wide a range of, of pupils as possible. So that's a massive market. And automatically, they will almost their hand will be forced to go for the most accessible software because it means that they're opening up education to everyone. So, yeah, and obviously, if you've got people going through school using a, a certain piece of software because it's accessible, that's what they're going to want to use later on when they're a professional. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's really amazingly put. Thanks, thanks for re restating this in this way. Uh, I maybe I wanted to recap once again the guidelines that you mentioned for accessibility. So a good test for a software developer to see if their so software is accessible is actually to turn on the screen reader. Uh, that's yeah. the first step. And the second step would be to turn off uh, the screen completely and see, uh, you know, yeah, if they're I able mean, to nav navigate the plugin. Yeah, it makes sense navigating, you know, using a screen reader on like a standard piece of built-in software first on the computer, like something that you know is accessible. So you know how to navigate basically using a keyboard and the screen reader. So you know what to expect. Um, but I think, yeah, if developers can get confident and comfortable navigating using a keyboard without using mm -hmm. a screen, that's 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 only going to be a good thing because it, it means that then there's a bit of uh, thinking and concentration on not just whether the labels are being read out correctly, but whether the kind of user experience is as good as it can be. Because there's always this um, accessibility, you know, the ability to access every feature of a piece of software isn't the same as a piece of software being really usable by mm -hmm. someone that requires mm -hmm. a screen reader. Um, because, yeah, it, it can be very cumbersome if thought doesn't go, you know, in the right places to kind of streamlining that kind of journey of navigating a piece of software. Okay, so you, you really need to think about the whole process, not just uh, a tiny, tiny bit of it. Yeah, and then what, exactly. then what you mentioned was also uh, resizability, uh, color contrast, and uh, accessibility accessibility labels. Mm, yeah. I have maybe one question, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I was curious, sure. like, is there 
some piece of software that you would recommend as a reference for as a good example of accessible software? It doesn't have to come from the audio industry. Yeah, I, I, I would say that no software is ever done and no accessible version is ever done. Um, I think it probably makes sense to stay in the audio industry a little bit because I think there are there are certain pieces that can be highlighted. I think Pro Tools or Avid as a whole have done a really, really good job. Um, so they, they work very closely with a guy called Chi Kim um, at the University of Berkeley, I think, um, or Berkeley College. Um, and they... So Avid actually have two people that I'm aware of working in kind of leadership positions who are visually impaired to some degree. Um, so I think that by default means that a lot of their software is, is developed in a good way. Again, it's not perfect, um, but Pro Tools is is quite a good example in that like almost every feature is accessible in 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 a in a pretty good way. Um, which is great. Um, and I think on the more kind of open source end of things as well, um, Reaper is really, really good. I mean, it's very flexible, which means it can be quite overwhelming for new users. Um, but the ability to tweak it with add-ons um, and accessibility, I hesitate with the word overlays um, because it's not really that, but there's a really, really good add-on called Osara, um, which opens up Reaper to be super accessible, which is great. Nice, nice. Many thanks for this example. I, I believe that a lot of developers will, will benefit from it. And in consequence, also musicians and, and sound engineers. So leaving the topic of software for now, uh, I really wanted to, um, to delve into the topic of maybe difficulties that uh, blind or partially blind musicians and sound engineers must uh, face on a day-to-day -day basis. So the first question from this series would be, are there any musical instruments or, or gear that are dedicated especially for blind people or partially blind people? I think th there are. Um, And I think a lot of really good work has gone into those things and they definitely deserve promoting. But I think in the future, much more focus needs to be on making mainstream equipment and software and hardware inclusive by default. Okay. I think you run into problems when you make stuff specifically for a, a smaller community because I guess by default they're, it, they're limited product runs which pushes the price up and all these kind of things. Um I mean, there are some really good bits of software which will be listed on on Sound Without Sight. Um, so, for example, uh, there's the Dancing Dots suite of uh, softwares for accessing notation, um, you know, converting it to open kind of music XML formats and um, accessing it using a screen reader, um, which is really, really helpful for some people. Um, But what we're starting to see now is those kind of features being incorporated into the mainstream software. So, for example, MuseScore, which is a, a free open source uh, notation package, they are very, very close to releasing some really similar features and ones that go even further in terms of 
you know, using like a like a braille display under your fingertips that will on it it will refresh to show you the music that's in front of you on the screen, uh, which is really really cool. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, and it's it's those kind of developments. But that MuseScore is not designed specifically for blind and partially sighted people. It's just those features are being incorporated into the main release, and it's you know that means that you get accessibility and inclusion to everyone because there there are not barriers there that to expense and you don't need specialist knowledge to kind of go and find these things um so yeah i can i can give you some more examples if you like but i i I would much rather um people consider design in the mainstream Mm -hmm. yeah i understand i understand so uh not software dedicated to to uh people who who are looking for accessibility features but Mm -hmm. uh, software and gear for simply for everyone and if you want to share yeah, exactly. more examples i'd be happy to share these in the episode notes so you can just simply yeah, se- yeah. send them over if that's fine. yeah i think a couple of bits now which came out at the adc actually um probably worth highlighting those because you know jason Dyson did a did a great job there having the accessibility zone i don't know if you managed to catch that yeah yeah um, i did they had a, I did. had a had a whole host of of bits and bobs of gear on the table, um, all of which could be operated without sight, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, so yeah, all of those were mainstream products. So there were products from Avid there, there were products from Softube there. Um, there were products from Native Instruments. Uh, so really cool to see these brands kind of embracing the whole topic. Um, but again, what I want to see is not a kind of accessibility corner necessarily i want to see those features being kind of promoted on the on the on the mainstream stands that's what i want to see next year yeah so um, that's a good setup for adc 23 then mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh, i wanted to also ask you uh, because from from what i uh, understand a lot of people start you know playing with music learning musical instruments at a quite young age and uh, I was very curious if you could answer the question uh, it, that maybe a lot of uh, parents of uh, children with sight impairment ask themselves at which is there any age in specific age at which uh, these children can start learning musical instruments or is the flow uh, exactly as if they were full sighted or maybe there are some prerequisites for it. I think really any age, um, certainly, yeah, sight should not be a barrier at any age to learning an instrument or learning music. Um, there are, I guess there are certain considerations. Um, I think one of them at the moment is that um, if you, if a child wants to study music GCSE or A-level, um, they need to be able to access and kind of read and write notation um, for those qualifications on the one hand maybe the qualifications need to change to be more inclusive um because maybe notation isn't for everyone so a lot of blind people will learn stuff by ear um as opposed to relying on notation but there is the argument at the moment where if you do want to go around down the road of learning braille music for example it's 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 good to do that as early as possible so by the time you get to the age of 14 or whatever it is when your first 
when you first need to do those qualifications, you've got some knowledge and it's not a new thing for you. Um, and I think if you're interested in that classical music world, um, get involved with, with grades and stuff as early as possible. Um, because I know for a fact that ABRSM, who are the main provider in the UK, at least, um, they're, they're doing a big push at the moment to make sure all of their products, all of their books are, are published in accessible formats, um, which is good because that needs to happen and that needs to that needs to happen across the world, really, not just in education, but with all music publishers. Um, but it's great that they're they're kind of taking that on. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I I didn't really. I mean, that's not my background. I don't have a, like loads and loads of classical music knowledge. You know, I've, I've done bits and bobs, picked it up along the way through work. But like I say, my background is more through just playing guitar and meeting people and jamming out and stuff like that. Um, and obviously, um, sight is no barrier to those kind of things. And, you know, they're just as relevant a pathway into the music industry as anything else, really. Yeah. Um, it's just a different set of skills. And I, I think arguably... Um, someone who does rely on learning stuff by ear and being very sensitive to other musicians in a performance like you know those are all really really good skills that, that get very developed very quickly if you're relying on them okay so to recap a little bit what you said from what i understand apart from some very uh let's say grounding skills that you need to to learn perform or mix music uh, there's not so much different at, at which age you start. And then uh, if you are in a way, uh, if you need some accessibility features of, of plugin and software, that is the, the main difference. But in essence, there's, there are no limits to how you can approach music and music creation process. Yeah. So yeah, 100% the limit isn't on the the individual it's not on the person i mean unfortunately there are still products coming out that aren't very accessible and therefore you know that's a shame that those things are going to be very difficult to use um i think in time that you know those barriers will become less and less as you know this kind of inclusive design practice becomes standard and that's what we're trying to that's what we're really trying to push with this project um is you know how can we assist the audio and music industry you know the design industry um to do that you know what can we do to help create these standards how can we encourage collaboration between you know big companies that can afford to do research to work out how to do these things um you know how can they help out the smaller companies who don't have the budget for research and don't have the budget to do a load of like um yeah working out how to do these things because at the moment there's not anywhere that um collates all of that information yeah and this is um but yeah in terms yeah in terms of people wanting to start music go for it <laughs> find, find a way that works for you um you know do what you want to do there's there's always ways around stuff it might involve finding your own solution it might involve doing a search of the internet, maybe through Sound Without Sight to find someone else who's been in a similar position. Um, but there are always ways around stuff, even if there are some barriers. But, you know, can't let them get in the way. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> have thought of a better encouragement to people who 
uh, you know, have this the same mental barrier before before starting out. So it's I think this whole conversation, yeah. your example, yeah. and everything that you shared will also help both both sides of the of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to be too flippant and and minimize the fact that you know some people have really you know it's gone gone to a lot of effort to find ways that work. Um, for them so that they can access music and they can participate in ensembles and they can do all the things that they want to do. Um, you know, a lot of people have gone to a lot of effort to make those things happen. Um, so what I'm hoping is that they will be open to sharing the solutions that they found with the rest of the world um, to make it easier for other people down the line. Hopefully. Awesome. So thank you. Thanks a lot for it. Uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, uh, we shared a little bit about the Audio Developers Conference 2022. Uh, how did you find it personally? And what do you wish for ADC 2023? I thought it was really good. Um, it was it was nice to see some conversations in this area. It was great that a lot of the developers that I met there were very open to conversations about accessibility. Um, it highlighted that there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, like I say, certainly in smaller developers, smaller manufacturers who don't have the time or the budget to explore these areas, I think the topics of accessibility, you know, how to get started, it can be quite daunting and overwhelming. So what needs to happen, hopefully this year, is almost sessions about introductions to the topic, how to engage with the idea of accessibility for the first time if you don't know and you're kind of scared of the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, a workshop yeah, would work. Yeah, yeah, as long as it was mm -hmm. being recorded and it's something that could be shared more widely afterwards, I think that would be a really, really useful piece of content um, that would be, you know, that would open up music to so many people if it was seen and heard by the right people. Um so I guess nice. that's, that's one very specific wish for this year. Maybe I should, maybe I should put in a um, proposal <laughs> to run the workshop. Maybe I'll do that. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's also it's also a task for me personally. I mean, there's a YouTube channel, a platform with audio programming tutorials. I mean, why isn't there a tutorial on creating accessible audio software? I mean, that's also a task for yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of layers to it as well because there it's it's like which of the development environments are accessible if you're a blind or partially sighted developer mm -hmm. what which of the tools are open to you that you can then use to create the software um you know and that's something that i don't have the answers to but across the community of people there will be that knowledge and that's something that as part of the inclusive design section of sound without sight i'm hoping we can pull that kind of thing together yeah, I remember uh, I visited DroidCon in Berlin uh, last year. Mm -hmm. So it's a conference about Android software development. And there, I don't remember any talks regarding accessibility. Um, of course, I may be mistaken and I may not recall all the talks, but it definitely wasn't a topic that was prominent anywhere. So maybe it's yeah. also a good area of, you know, pitching the uh, IDE uh, manufacturers, so to say, so IDE mm -hmm. developers to also go in this direction. 
Yeah, because I think accessibility needs to happen from all angles. It's not just the end product that needs to be accessible because to do that well, you need you know, inclusion within the developer community. You need inclusion within management at music technology companies. You know, it needs to be across the board for it to be truly meaningful and valuable. Um, the thing is just getting more people into the, all of those positions. Um, and, you know, I guess little by little, that's part of my role at both Sound Without Sight and at RNIB is making sure that there are like useful pathways through the industry for people who want to engage in those areas. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I hope that also this podcast episode is in part a fulfillment of your mission and will bring a beautiful, 100%. beautiful fruit. No, thank thank you so much for, for having me. Um, yeah, no, it's been really, really good. Um, excited to excited to hear it back, actually. <laughs> yeah, I thank you. I thank you. It was my pleasure. I learned a lot. And I'm, I'm sure that the podcast listeners too. I have one last question for you. So if someone wanted to contact you, where do you recommend they go? So I think if you are a member of the blind or partially sighted community or you want to improve your support for that community, probably the best place is through Sound Without Sight. Um, on, on the website, there is a, there's a contact form on there. Um, that will come through to me or, or the wider team. I think if you need real specific support with something or maybe you are a music tech designer and you want some specific kind of consultancy done on your on your product or your software, the best place would be through RNIB. Um, so you can contact me and the wider team at rnib.org.uk slash music. Um, so there are contact details on there. Um, so yeah, those are probably the two best avenues. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you once again for this podcast episode and all the best for all your future endeavors. Oh no, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's been, been really <laughs> Thanks good. Thanks a lot. Take care. And you, and you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That was Jay Pocknell, a production and mixing engineer, founder of the Sound Without Sight organization, currently working at the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Thanks again, Jay, for this talk, for this interview. I really, really enjoyed it. And also the chat that we had before and afterwards. If you have a chance to hook up with Jay Pocknell, then I encourage you to do so. As usual, all people, places and references mentioned in this podcast episode can be found under dwolfsound.com slash talk013. Once again, it's dwolfsound.com slash talk013. Please subscribe to the channel on YouTube, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you can, and submit your feedback and guest ideas in the comments on YouTube. Once again, don't forget about the audio plugin developer checklist that you can get under dwolfsound.com slash checklist. And as usual, thanks for listening and see you in the next one. Take care.